Hi, I'm Shereen Patek, and you're listening to Making Marketing by Digiday. Every week, I talk to marketing leaders who are changing the industry one decision at a time, be it figuring out new growth paths for DTC brands, applying new technologies, or the importance of agencies. There's a lot to unpack. And joining me this week is Rob Schutz, co-founder and CRO at Roe, a healthcare technology company that's also the parent company of Roman which makes ED pills. Roe has a different set of challenges to worry about compared to most other DTC companies. There's concerns of different regulations in every state, brand messaging around sensitive topics like erectile dysfunction, and establishing legitimacy for prospective customers and their networks. Their work's cut out for them. In this episode, I talked to Rob about the value of advertising on Facebook versus advertising on TV, how the DTC marketing playbook has changed as the brand grows, and much, much more. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi, Rob. Welcome to Making Marketing. Thank you. Great to be here. We're excited to have you. So last time we spoke, uh, and for those who don't know, uh, that was in August in lovely Vail, Colorado, mm-hmm. where you were at one of our wonderful events. Um, I believe it was the content marketing yeah. event in Vail. It's fantastic. Thank you for having me. We were excited to have you then. We're so excited to have you back. So my first thing was you were basically a different person back then um, because the name of your company has changed. Well, that doesn't define me as a person, you know, but I, you know, I think I have evolved as, as has the company. So tell us a little bit about what's been going on. Sure. So, yeah, I guess as a slight backstory, uh, we launched uh, the company as Row. Row is our umbrella brand. We uh, at that time we just had one live vertical called Roman. Roman is still around. It's our men's health vertical. Uh, we had erectile dysfunction as our first condition under Roman. Uh, still very much alive and kicking. We've now launched four additional uh, conditions under Roman: uh, premature ejaculation, herpes cold sores, uh, hair loss, and we'll probably have anywhere from three to five new conditions over the next quarter and a half under Roman as well. So we things also have, that can affect anything with men's health. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the body happens to be very interconnected. And uh, that's actually one of the reasons we launched our second vertical called Zero, which is our addiction platform. Uh, Zero, the one condition we are live with uh, under that vertical is a kit to help people quit smoking. So the leading preventable cause of death in the world. Um, so it's nicotine gum, uh, prescription medication, which helps a lot of people with the, the cravings aspect, and then a uh, companion app. Mm-hmm. And we are also furiously working away at our third vertical, which is a women's vertical, which will be launching the end of this quarter. So we are very, very excited Hold about- Whole new world. A whole new world. That's right. Um, but yeah, there's been a lot of, you know, Things have been moving very quickly. We launched October 2017. Uh, very fortunate to find a lot of success early on with the initial ED product. But what that led us to was a good understanding of for a physician to establish a patient with a physician, it's very much what's the foot in the door? What does that person actually care about that day? It's unlikely if a doctor wanted to talk about someone's cholesterol and you run a Facebook ad for that, someone's going to click it and want to go through a 40 question online visit to tell you about cholesterol. But if it's something they woke up and they're thinking about, if it's ED, if they want to quit smoking, if there's a UTI um, that one wants to deal with, it's something they probably think about as soon as they get up. And so our philosophy is much more, how do we build these hook conditions that people actually care about, bring them into the ecosystem. And that's when you kind of get the opportunity to trick people into being healthy. You know, once they're, they're already in, the physician has a uh, relationship. They have their medical records. We're building insurance integration. We'll have integrations with labs. So you can get, you know, Test. urine, blood, test, et cetera. 
and have that all feed into a singular system with a, a single point of care. So what is the, um, for those who might not be familiar, um, maybe because they've never had the opportunity to have to use the product, because um, it might be women, but that's yeah. about to change. Um, what is the typical, if there is one, kind of a customer journey that most people tend to find mm-hmm. you through? Yeah. And as a side note on the women, uh, the, the, the women's side, we actually see 30% of new members coming in for uh, cold sores and herpes are women who just don't have great resources to, mm-hmm. to actually treat this stuff online. The vast majority of our uh, smoking cessation customers are also women. So we've been learning a lot about uh, what is it, what is accessible and available for the different demographics, yeah. and we're excited about that next step. Um, but yeah, so most folks will, you know, we, we have a variety of channels that drive people into the funnel. A lot of time, it's, it's pretty intent-driven. People know that they might be suffering from condition. If they have an outbreak of herpes or experiencing hair loss or uh, experiencing issues with erectile dysfunction, they kind of know that this is something they need to deal with. So some folks will come in through search, some will see a TV ad, some will hear us on radio. But we we try to experiment a lot to find people who are in the right state of mind and are looking for solutions. Once somebody comes to our site, they'll start a dynamic online visit, which is different for each condition and different based on what answers they'll give. So, Which means there's a some kind of a quiz or a series of questions. Yeah, it could range anywhere from 30 to 50 questions, depending on, um, you know, if you experience HIV, it'll ask you what type of medication, what frequency, how long you've been taking, et cetera, but only if you kind of go down that path. So someone will answer a series of questions, um, medical history, sexual history for some of these, uh, family history, symptoms, et cetera. They'll take a picture of their face and their ID, so the physician can uh, view and verify identity. And then that goes into our uh, homegrown physician EMR that we have built. We've built all the technology underneath all of this, and the physician will review. They can go through HIPAA-compliant messaging to ask questions. In some states, each state is regulated uh, differently. So in some states, uh, it will require a phone call or a video call after. Uh, But after that process is completed, the physician can either approve a medication, decline or, or reject. Um, and then if approved, in most cases, that goes to the, the row Pharmacy Network, which operates across the country. We currently ship to 98.5% of the U.S. population right now. And uh, we have two-day shipping that gets to people's door quick and in a discreet way. There's so much to unpack here. Okay, my first one is I think, you know, we've talked um, on this podcast, but in general, just at Digiday, um, just over the last year now about, you know, some people are calling them direct-to-consumer brands, some people digitally native brands. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that even, and it's such a huge term, it's this like bucket that covers everything from luggage to slippers to medication and health and yeah. so many of these different types of categories that are now really in some ways being bucketed under this, you know, is direct to consumer. But that Mm -hmm. is the thing that kind of sets them apart from these legacy incumbents out there that there was always somebody in the middle. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of my simplest explanation for to explain what's going on here with with these companies. What has been kind of sort of health and telehealth, and you're seeing a lot of Mm -hmm. action in that space specifically with direct to consumer. What are some of the unique or more unique challenges there other than regulation mm-hmm. um, that, you know, I don't know, Away a or Rothy's, you know, which sells slippers, just won't have. Right. And I, I will point out one reason, uh, before we get into that specifically, one reason why you're seeing more companies in this telehealth space right now than you have is is really that regulatory environment. There's been stops and starts with telehealth for 
for a long time. It's now gotten to a point where because CMS, Centers for Medicaid and Medicaid Services, are starting to embrace the concept of reimbursing for telehealth visits in some capacity, that is now pushing the states and the legislature uh, to pass laws and clarify existing laws that you can now safely and legally do some of these so things So this online. enabled basically a, a spurt of activity, and yeah. I assume sort of a yeah. spurt of funding activity, and therefore all of these yeah. things happen. And a, a lot of times, especially in our space, people will say, it's, oh, the patent's were coming off. And so that was really what well, did it. Especially in, for yeah. uh, Roman specifically. Well, yeah. partially, but a lot of it is the regulatory environment. In fact, the the vast majority of medication that is prescribed on our um, network by, by the physicians has been off patent for six or more years. So it's much more a byproduct of the regulatory environment starting to catch up than uh, then the patent cliffs, all those are, although those are very important because the, the uh, demographic and the consumer base is already educated about those. People have seen 20 years of weird, <laughs> weird people Viagra holding hands in bathtubs and throwing footballs through tire swings. Um, but yeah, I would say outside of the regulatory piece, I mean, something I think a traditional DTC, and as you know, my background is I was at BarkBox for five years, so coming from that space where... Uh, people get it right away and there, there's less of a, a trust issue. I think that's something a lot of telemedicine, telehealth-based companies have to deal with. Um, you know, new to a lot of people, not the majority of people have not interacted with telemedicine before. And there's very much this trust issue of like, who are these people? Who are the doctors? You know, Viagra specifically has long been associated with scummy, you know, illegal online pharmacies. And in fact, uh, uh, a study by Pfizer a couple of years ago found that 80% of Viagra purchased online is from counterfeit pharmacies, Chinese, Indian, Canadian pharmacies. And so there's this stigma that's been built up. And everyone, if you check your spam fil filter, mm -hmm. I don't know if you do, I don't know why you would, but a, a lot of that um, comes from people trying to sell Viagra through email. Right. So there's it actually, in some ways, it's almost like a just starting or beginning from a deficit at a yeah, point. Of, totally. Firstly, it's already enough that, oh my God, I have to buy things online, which is a behavior now that's obviously right. shifted quite a bit from, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but then you're talking about, it's it's similar in some way maybe to something like, I can't finance or trying to buy, you know, trying yeah. to put your savings and having banks that are online only. Yeah, Money, totally. sexual health, health. There you go. It's a trust and legitimacy issue where... Um, you know, we, we've spent a tremendous amount of time building up our uh, medical advisory board to, to make sure we're instilling as much trust as possible. So we have two ex-surgeon generals, ex-head of the DEA, you know, head of men's health uh, here in New York, head of urology at Cornell. We have about 25 advisors across the country that are really the, the leaders in this space that are very excited to get involved, to write treatment protocols, to lend their, their name. Uh, but it's an uphill battle in that sense. And we, we also felt it a lot initially when we launched around the, the ad networks too. You know, you can't just launch a telemedicine company and advertise on Google and advertise on Facebook. Well, it's not allowed. What's that? Is it not allowed? So on Google, you actually cannot, uh, you cannot advertise medication unless you are certified and accredited pharmacy. Mm -hmm. And so while we were going through that process as we launched, we went through a bunch of stops and starts there. And, you know, it's for good reason. They don't want you know, Joe Schmo pharmacy popping up and, and sending pills to people. Uh, but it it was an uphill battle initially of, of educating these networks, sitting down with them, showing them who we are, that we're a, a legitimate player in the space. And we take privacy and we take medical, uh, you know, medical safety very seriously. So first few months were 
we're rocky there too, just getting everything set up. That's so interesting because, you know, one big thing is always, oh, well, DTC brands, you know, the Instagram age, Instagram built on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've... Uh, We've had people that have sort of said, like, you know, we're basically brands that were built on Instagram. And yeah. in, uh, for a lot of them, especially those in probably the non-health space, really, they're finding now that they have to kind of wean themselves off these mm-hmm. platforms because they were built so heavily on them. Yeah. That's that they spent all their marketing money on them. Look, BarkBox, we, we, uh, that was our bread and butter. Right. We, we got involved very early there. We actually built an influencer network at BarkBox called the Bark Pack. It was 500 relatively famous dogs on Instagram that had lots of dog followers. Influencers? Well, we call them, you know, uh, there's a lot of name. There's a lot of dog <laughs> puns. I don't want to go back to that portion of my life. It's hard. It's hard to break yourself out of it. Uh, but Bark Pack was basically all these dogs on Instagram who had tons of followers and they didn't know how to monetize it. Uh, so we very early on, on the back of Instagram, got very involved, very visual product, etc. You know, I've always found Instagram, Facebook, probably the first channel you end up starting on when you're testing for paid, but doesn't work incredibly well for everyone. Like, for example, Roman, when we were just doing erectile dysfunction medication, there wasn't a lot of un- unboxing videos. There weren't people that were screaming from the rooftops about, like, I got this and getting likes and shares, seeing that, like, word of mouth network effect that you might we, see with... We've seen know. word of mouth in other ways, mm-hmm. but less so on a, I'm going to post this unboxing and use my coupon code and build a referral program. What we found is content is important, but you have to build content for your audience and for your product. So for us, content was much more, let's build 75 uh, physician guides about all these different conditions, all of these different pieces of medication, all of the side effect profiles, et cetera. And so we rank first for Buy Viagra. We rank first for Cialis Online. It's a different content play, but it's it's very much dependent on who you are. If you're in a way, if you're a home polish, you, you invest in your Instagram mm-hmm. because that is where people will follow you. It's a visually pleasing product. That is where your audience expects to see you. For other folks, that's not... The first place you spend your time and you know when you're a small team when you're three or four people in a room and, and resources are, are so tight and you need to be prioritizing you need to create content in a way that it's going to reach hopefully as far down the funnel as possible with people and find a way to bring those people into your ecosystem who is making this content for you, you guys did it yourselves yeah, so it's it's our actually our team of in-house doctors. So the initial, <laughs> our physician in residence is actually my co-founder Z's dad, uh, who is a very well-known uh, sexual health doctor and has practiced for forty years. He, while we were getting ready to launch, in addition to reading the to writing the treatment um, treatment protocols, also kind of I worked with him on. Here's our list of a uh, one hundred twenty topics and keyword-rich topics uh, that we want to go after and kind of got his medical expertise and, and worked against those. What did you find sort of as you grew? What started working differently, especially in terms of where you were spending your marketing money and yeah. how to market? What uh, what shifted? Yeah, I mean, initially, I think about it as kind of two different demos, and that's how that has unfolded with, with our marketing strategy as well. We had our younger demo, which many... Again, when we were only doing ED and we were only Roman, many people didn't realize and still don't that ED affects a wide swath of the populations, 20% of them in their 20s, 30% in their 30s, 40% in their 40s, and so on. It, it actually follows a linear path. So initially, we launched with a lot of digital search, paid and organic, social 
paid social. That was like a good place to start. And we did see a younger demo initially come in. The average age probably of a new member coming in when we launched was in the mid-30s. As we have expanded, we have realized there's your younger Instagram. I buy Blue Apron. I'm comfortable you know, seeing things in my feed and clicking and buying from them demo. And then there's your older, my dad doesn't trust anything he sees on the internet. He, he needs to hear it on TV. He needs to see it in the subway. He needs to hear it on the, uh, the radio with a host talking about it. So there's kind of these two different marketing strategies where we built initially off of that younger uh, kind of digital playbook that I brought over from from the bark yeah. from the bark days. But then as we've grown, as we've seen the audience mature, we've worked our way into much more traditional out of home that also continues to build that trust and that legitimacy. When someone sees you on TV, when someone sees you on the subway, there's definitely a feeling of this is a real company. And Digital brands legit. love the subway, though. Yeah. They well, love them. It's, you know, I think New York is actually a relatively unique market in that sense where, you know, we've run subway in a lot of other mm. cities and New York is just unique. Um, it's, it's also, if you're from New York, it's a little bit of, you see it as a bit of a rite of passage where if you've raised money people wind up running on the subway uh, for us we've so taken like vcs are just like okay are you at the subway stage <laughs> are you at yeah the- where are you? i mean some people go like media salespeople will just sit on the subway they'll write down who they see and then they follow up with all those companies how do you think we get all our story ideas that's right you just ride back and forth the on the deal. a train all day um but for us we you know we've taken a bit of a different approach where Subway is important from an acquisition standpoint, certainly, but it can't, in many cases, be the only goal. It needs to be a combination of great for recruiting, right? Great for brand, great for uh, investor relations as well. So if you if you view it purely as, am I going to spend a dollar on Facebook and does it back into a CPA? It's tougher. Uh, but if for us, we think about it much more as we have a much larger story to tell. We're actually running ads right now for Row telling the story of Roe and how we're building the future of healthcare as we expand out of just a single brand. Um, It's important for our narrative and for people to know who we are. And it's made a tremendous difference when it comes to hiring as well. I can't tell you how many people wouldn't respond uh, or get back to me when we were a single product Roman that I've heard from since that are so excited and they understand the mission and the vision more. Yeah. Yeah. And you're doing TV. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about that because I think you bring up an interesting point about, you know, and this isn't just even about Roman, but I think that you were in an interesting place because you had kind of the younger democratic, the uh, demographic, the digital mm-hmm. playbook, you, but you also recognized there was an older playbook and older people maybe who preferred something else and were mm-hmm. more receptive to something else. And you're seeing all of these, you know, DTC, digitally native brands now kind of doing that, but for a different reason from why you did it. They're doing it because sort of they're wondering, have we reached the limits of kind of online advertising? And it's gotten really expensive. I mean, is there, specifically with Facebook and Instagram, it is expensive, right? And is it still as worth it? Because it's getting so crowded. Did you ever sort of get to that point of figuring out if this makes sense for you anymore? Yeah, it's going to come back for each brand. It's going to come back to like what their tolerance is and how much can they afford to spend on a new member, right? If you're Casper, and your product is a thousand dollars. You have much more leeway to to spend aggressively on out of home channels or or a Facebook, uh, even as prices go up, because the payback period is still in line with your goals. I think you know brands. I'm still a large fan of Facebook on the on the acquisition side. It is one of the few channels you can 
you can really optimize against. And the tracking is, as we all know, like the tracking is very good. I think that that might change over the next few years. I think that's interesting. But that also, for me, reinforces like why it's important to do it now before things change drastically. I do think that you do see these companies that tap out that have spent a lot of money on uh, Facebook and Instagram, and you reach a, you start to reach a local maximum. TV is really just another channel to explore into when you're able to pay that ante. You know, you, you can't spend $5,000 and run a TV campaign. You have to be willing to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars to feel a little bit better about the lack of real-time analytics that you get. That attribution is going to be a bit trickier. You need organizational buy-in that um, this might take three to four to six months and half a million dollars to figure uh, out if it's a real channel or not. And for teams sort of reared on kind of digital marketing, it seems like, are you kidding me? Yeah. I do think some of the reasons you see more people in TV than you have is the attribution has gotten better. The the ability to track someone back to a, an ad or have a pretty good sense that they came from that ad has gotten better over the years. Well, a lot of that is kind of OTT and sort of all of the changes in kind of what constitutes TV as well. Yeah. yeah. And you also even see the, historically TV agencies would take you a week or two to get post logs on what ran, understand what the pop was from that maybe then you make a change for two weeks out because you've already pre-bought. It was still a very long lead time. There are services now where you can get a pretty good sense the next day of what the performance was, and you can start to optimize against it. So the transition from like, I'm running Facebook and Google, and I'm literally making intraday optimizations Mm -hmm. to a more historical TV view of it's going to take me four weeks to optimize anything was really tough for a lot of digital marketers. I think it's the gap has started to close in terms of how quickly you can start to make changes in creative and day parts and channels, et cetera. So it's not just that it just got really expensive and so people freaked out and were like, why I don't a, I just spend this on I think the, it's a combination. Okay. I think it's a combination. And as, if you, as you have more businesses out there that are seeing success on TV and doing amazing podcasts like yours and talking about it, it starts to plant that seed more with people and more people are experimenting. So I think it's there's a couple of parallel tracks that leading to the renewed interest there. Talk to me a little bit about then, because then you've, we've sort of talked a little bit about the playbook of, you know, again, supposed DTC brands, but also your own. And then legacy brands I find really interesting at this moment in time, because they're sort of seeing all these things that all these really unique companies are doing, changing the entire market when it comes mm-hmm. to certain categories, um, changing the way they even do their own marketing, changing who does their marketing. What has the effect kind of as an industry been on sort of just the concept of, okay, here's retail and retailers, and then you're having this shift saying, wait, there is a different way to do Mm -hmm. it. Do you think that it's sort of a, okay, they're going to come back and start doing what DTC brands were doing now? You start to see that a little bit when you look at CPG, you look at a J&J, you look at at these guys, and they've traditionally been, you know, you'll have a brand manager, they're responsible for budget, they'll run on social, uh, they'll run in these channels, but you don't have the type of conversion data you get with DTC. Facebook you're selling a product and you're an e-commerce company, you can see that day how many people checked out, what your CPA was, mm-hmm. and which creative performed the best. The difference is when someone is in retail, you get a report maybe four to six weeks later on how how that store, how the stores by geo performed, and then you kind of have to make some assumptions of what went into that lift or that dip. So there, there's this 
new world now where D2C is someone actually getting a, a purchase online and then shipping something to someone. And so you can actually start to optimize against it. Retail is a bit tougher uh, to do that. And so you see some of the CPG companies now starting to work on direct-to-consumer products because they understand that there's a much tighter correlation between their ad dollars and efficiency or than they've ever been them. able to see in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's interesting. You definitely see you definitely see this happening. Um, I think when it comes to large CPG players, definitely have very deep pockets, can spend a lot of money, but they're slower. Right. It, it takes a lot of internal buy-in. It takes time to get all stakeholders aligned. What does the brand agency say? What is the, you know, what is the GM of that category? There's just a lot of uh, legacy kind of bureaucratic steps that they have to go through in order to launch something like that. So. They're they're certainly interested. They see the success in the space, and uh, I think that's good. Though I think it's always good to have good competition. That if it's another, you know, digitally native brand, if it's a retailer, like we are pleased that we have good smart competition that mm-hmm. push us in a lot of different. So how does it areas. work for, for a company like yours? You mentioned you know speed. Again, you don't have to look at fifteen different types of stakeholders and people to ask for their opinion necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you kind of organized internally to ensure that you remain that way, especially as you've kept growing? Yeah, a hot topic of conversation internally as well. I think you know we were four, we were five people, October of twenty seventeen when we so launched. easy when it's five people. Yeah, it was, we just sat around a table and we did the things. We we have one hundred fifteen in New York now. Uh, probably about 145 total when you add part-timers as well. Uh, and, what is the approximate kind of breakdown in, in terms of like job function? The vast majority is engineering and product. Uh, we, we've spent a tremendous amount of time building out all of our own full-stack technology. The physician EMR, the patient application, the pharmacy, um, the physician network, which is 58 doctors across the country, four distribution centers, etc. So tech, we're, we're very much a healthcare technology company, and so we've skewed in that direction with, with headcount. At least you're not a lifestyle brand. Oh, that's right. Lifestyle brand. Yeah, we're, and honestly, we're not, and there's there's others in the space that, that are, and I think that's great for them, uh, but what we're trying to build is a, when you come through Row, you talk to your doctor. You We're building a healthcare technology brand where you trust who you have spoken with and they are your doctor. And I think that's very different and, and it's where we are going to continue to build our moat. We are we are your physician in your pocket and we'll continue to build that out. Um, so, you, But you still have to stay fast. You yeah. can't become like a J&J and yeah. a huge company. Not that you're anywhere close to their size, but it's a, <laughs> it's get, you get to that point of thinking, totally. okay, I said that I was going to be fast and agile and mm-hmm. speedy. Am I? Yeah. So what we've realized is you need to build into the structure f- flexibility and nimbleness, but you also need decision making. It can't just because you have a lot of people doesn't mean everyone is a decision maker. And we realize that, you know, there's a, an example we point to where our VP of product, uh, Jess, who is amazing, she was trying to get an answer on something for, for one of the new conditions. And so she sent an email out to like 17 people just praying that someone's going to reply with here's a decision, like move forward with this. And we realized there was actually no real decision maker on it. It always was coming back to founders, what do the founders think? So we have a GM structure that we've put in place where there's a GM that sits on top of each business is the ultimate decision maker for everything when it comes to the brand, when it comes to spend, when it comes to marketing, pricing, on-site optimization, conversion, resourcing, et cetera. We need still that we still need that decision making at the top where there's no confusion about who do I go to ask about 
this for the brand or for the for this vertical so that you can still move really quickly so we're we're still working that through we have really strong gms that we have in place currently uh, but figuring out how uh, a matrixed organization where the functions all work across all of the different verticals how that works best with a singular gm it's a work in progress but we found a tremendous amount of value having a singular point of contact who's responsible for the PL and for the brand and for the marketing and using more in-house resources, almost like an agency. Do you work with agencies? We traditionally have not worked with a ton. We've tried to build a lot of that in-house. Uh, when it comes to the marketing and growth side, that's almost exclusively in-house. Um, we will work occasionally with agencies for specialty areas. but TV? Yeah, we have a media buyer for TV. Okay. Um, what about the create, creative part of it? Creative is right now in-house. Uh, we have a, an amazing creative director um, and a VP of design and, and creative, Pete, who, who has an incredible background, work with Nike and Barnes and & Noble, et cetera, and has kind of built a, a pretty in, impressive, we call it the creative kitchen, where they're essentially the agency uh, for each of the brands, and the brands can tap into them with requests, and we'll have project managers that kind of handle those. How important? Is that sort of to a brand like yours, in-house having creative? that in-house? I think pretty important. I think probably more important for us than than others, potentially. They're, you know, especially when our first product was erectile dysfunction, launching in this environment, and the messaging and the the narrative that we build was so critical to get right. We couldn't we couldn't have many swings and misses when we're talking about this type of topic. So we felt from the very beginning we needed people in house who understood the brand, they understood the mission, they understand, you know, Z, my co founder's story and his struggles with he's been very vocal about his issues with E D as he as he grew up and was a you know, early indicator of his heart condition, who understands the context versus you get pissed off to some junior account manager who wants to write snarky copy and it happens to be, you know, sexual in nature and you wind up in a place that you're not proud of. So we think it's it's really important for us. I think you can get by initially using a good smart agency um, and and you can kind of get off the ground that way without having to have everything in-house. But we felt from the get-go that it, w- it was important to really uh, to really own that function and, and make sure that the brand came through in the way we wanted. And who knows your brand better than your own people? Yeah, it's true. How does physical presence fit into kind of your growth going forward? Or does it fit into it? Physical presence like... Stores, pop-ups, going into other stores. Yeah, I mean... I would say we're probably a little unique in that the vast majority of our products require a prescription and interaction with a physician. We do have some OTC products that we've launched, which are which are exclusive uh, to 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 Roman and for the women's vertical as well. But in the vast majority of the cases requires a physician's input. Um, so there's less of a do we put our products in a Walmart or a Target type of conversation or open right your own now. Stores. Yeah, I think that's you know. That's something we'd certainly consider. We, It's been very much a prioritization game. We're a little over a year in, and we're trying to make sure that not only are we focusing on, on growing the company, which we've been very fortunate to grow quickly, but we, we truly believe we are building the future of healthcare. And what that means is we have to... We have to walk the walk a bit. We need to invest in uh, the physician-patient interactions. We need to invest in medication management. We need to invest in a wide variety of areas that that 
build that mode for us around really being uh, a unique player in the space and filling a void that no one else does. So we we are making the decision to not always press, press, press for growth at all times at the expense of other areas and sometimes be happy with growing 90% as much as we could, but devoting resources toward building the and strengthening the bond between patients and physicians. Mm-hmm. Great. Rob, thank you so much for being on Making Marketing. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you like the show, here's what you need to do. Give us a shout out on iTunes or tweet at me. I'm at Shireen Patek. You can also send me an email at Shireen at Can't wait to hear what you think. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week. 